0: Hello, and welcome to Nonprofit Nation. I'm your host, Julia Campbell, and I'm going to sit down with nonprofit industry experts, fundraisers, marketers, and everyone in between to get real and discuss what it takes to build that movement that you've been dreaming of. I created the Nonprofit Nation podcast to share practical wisdom and strategies to help you confidently find your voice, definitively grow your audience, and effectively build your movement. If you're a nonprofit newbie or an experienced professional who's looking to get more visibility, reach more people, and create even more impact, then you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. To another episode of Nonprofit Nation. I'm your host, Julia Campbell. So excited to be here with you today. We have a special guest, someone I've been following online for quite a while and have never met. So I'm so excited to have her on the podcast. Bethany Snyder is the founder of Snyder Strategies. She's going to tell us all about that later on in the episode. She's been on all sides of the advocacy world as a grassroots advocacy director, a lobbyist, a consultant, a communications director, and a U.S. Senate staffer, which we need all the tea on that for sure. She's worked for a range of organizations and she has a passion for ensuring That nonprofits and membership orgs use their voices and expertise to influence policies that impact those most in need. I absolutely love it. Welcome, Bethany. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yay, I'm thrilled to have you here. So let's begin. We always begin with your story. What led you to where you are today?
1: You know, I reflect on this a lot. So I am in the nonprofit advocacy space. So I work with organizations to past policies. And so that's in the legislative arena. And the sometimes people call it the political arena, but we'll talk about that later, the difference. Mm-hmm. But I was kind of that kid in high school who was always organizing stuff. I was yes. the party planner. I was the rebel The cruise rouser, director. The cruise director, the rebel rouser. So if I just naturally played that part in my life, and then as I got older, I realized you can do that for a living. And that's um, grassroots advocacy. And so I really got my um, chops really through feminism is what we mm-hmm. brought me into it. As I would say, I would call myself a young feminist. Yes. And then from there, I really got into healthcare policy and yeah. And, not, and I work solely in the nonprofit space. Do you want to tell
0: us who you worked for in the U S Senate?
1: Sure. I can't. So I, yeah. So full <laughs> of my career, as I say, I say I peaked at 35, um, <laughs> wow. but I was um, Senator Al Frankens healthcare policy, LGBTQ outreach specialist. I worked in his state office, Yes, which is another thing we'll talk about. People forget that all our lawmakers have people just right down the street from you. You don't have to go to DC to engage with your lawmakers, especially federal ones. Yes.
0: Oh, that's right. We definitely need some tips on that. So Mm -hmm. tell me about the kind of work you do right now. How do you work with nonprofits?
1: Yeah. So the things I work with nonprofits, I typically work with nonprofits that already have some sort of legislative agenda. They already know that they are in the space to pass legislation. Typically, they're membership based organizations, typically healthcare adjacent, only because I have that policy expertise. So I can, and when someone talks about meaningful use or the Affordable Care Act, I know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and they usually have some sort of legislative agenda, but they just haven't found the secret sauce to engage their members. Uh-huh. They usually um, are very lobbyist focused, lobbyist led, government relations led, yet they are membership organizations. So they have all these members that are sitting at the ready who want to engage and they just haven't figured out how to most efficiently and
0: impactfully do that. Amazing. So Mm -hmm. what do you say to an organization that comes to you or someone listening that says, well, we're a nonprofit. We're a 501c3. We can't engage in advocacy. We're not supposed to.
1: Yes. So this is probably the number one myth in my sector mm-hmm. is that 501c3 orgs cannot engage in advocacy or lobbying. So some of them understand they can't engage in, ab- maybe not direct lobbying. That's absolutely not true. 501c3s can engage in lobbying and advocacy. There are specific spending requirements, You know, spending limits you need to be cognizant of. But if you're just starting out, I mean, you will not hit that the called the H elective. You will not hit that. You should talk to your, you know, your lawyer or your CPA about that if that's something you're worried about. But first of all, most of what nonprofits do is education. Mm-hmm. If you're talking, if you are out there trying to end homelessness, end hunger, expand access to health care, expand immigrant rights access, most of your time is spent educating. Only when you go and talk to a lawmaker and say, will you pass this bill? Will you support this piece of legislation? Is it considered lobbying? And so I would say even with organizations that do a ton of lobbying, 90% of that is is
0: education and a very small part of that is lobbying. Mm -hmm. So what's the difference? I think the key difference that nonprofits need to understand are something you mentioned earlier. What's the difference between legislative advocacy and and political advocacy?
1: Yes, this definitely comes from that last question. So, when in terms of the so five hundred one c threes cannot engage in what I call big P politics, and there's even some allowances for that. So, according to the IRS, those things are political candidates, political parties, and elections. So, um, you can't say, for example, if you're trying to you know end homelessness, that support these Democrats because they want to end homelessness, or I think you should vote for so and so. You can't say that. Or you can't just, for example, invite all Democrats to your town hall forum. But you can have a town hall forum and invite everyone. You can talk about people's voting records based on how they're voting and their issues, just not based on what political party they are. And you can engage in elections when it comes to voter outreach and voter registration, voter education, and many orgs do that. So again, when it comes to IRS, it's very narrow what is considered political activity but then there's the broad spectrum of other things that nonprofits can do, which is lobbying, which
0: is advocacy, which is education. Oh, I love that. So that's something that I run into all the time. Well, first of all, if you know anyone that knows me that has ever read my writing or seen me speak knows that I believe that all nonprofit work is inherently political. There's always someone out there trying to take away your funding. There's always someone out there that disagrees with what you do, even if you are an after school program for kids, you're in camp, you're an arts program. There's always some element of politics. But when I say that people hear partisan, that's what they hear. So when, when nonprofits think of politics, they tend to think, oh, you need to take a side. You need to take, you need to be Republican, Democrat, green party, you know, independent, you need to take a side. And that's not at all what nonprofits should be doing or need to be doing or are doing effectively. So I think this is really important because especially as trust in institutions is falling, I really see our job as advocating for our worth, but also advocating for funding, You know, advocating for attention.
1: Absolutely. I always say that. So there's political issues, big P, and then there's political issues, small P. So yes. in the eyes of the IRS, like I said, those things, partisan things, partisan politics, parties, candidates, and elections are big P things you want to stay away from. But there's also the things that our nonprofits work on ending home. I'm going to say these over and over again, ending yep. homelessness, expanding yes. access to healthcare, yep. fighting for immigrant rights are not partisan issues homelessness can strike anyone regardless regardless of your party exactly who you are. hunger can strike anyone and these impact all communities red ones blue ones conservative ones um, liberal ones what a progressive ones so just because an issue has been made political right. in the world or in yes. the you know our culture wars does not make it political so for mm-hmm. example, I belong to the queer community, the LGBT mm-hmm. community. And so sometimes organizations are like, Oh, we, that's too political. We don't want to dive into that. Being LGBT is not political. I am not a political thing. People have mm-hmm. made it political, have mm-hmm. turned it into a partisan issue. Mm-hmm. And someday maybe fire hydrants will be turned into a partisan issue. I don't know. I'm We've sure they that. are. We've seen that coronavirus public health issues have been turned partisan. Like just because it is, that does not mean it's that in the eyes of the IRS. Um, so- and so I think it's a, incumbent upon nonprofits to rise above that and to remind us that these are not partisan issues.
0: I love that. Yes. I'm just like going to snap over here. Yes. Women's bodies are political. Wearing a mask is political. I'm sure a fire hydrant in some way is political, like save the fire hydrants. But I love what you said. And I think that that truly sticks with me and resonates with me. People and identity, that's not political. And it's been turned into a political issue just to feed the culture wars and feed certain people's agendas. So I hear that all the time from organizations. I don't want to talk about current events because every, even talking about, like you said, coronavirus, even talking about the pandemic, even talking about vaccines is turning into a political, you know, battleground. But what I think I really believe nonprofits have a duty to stand up for the people that they serve and stand up for the issues that they care about, the problem that they're solving and advocating for yourself, for your funding, for your people, talking to legislators and informing, that's not necessarily lobbying. That's not necessarily advocacy the way I think a lot of organizations might get it confused. So, I've been following you on the Progressive Exchange listserv, which everyone should be on if you're a progressive or interested in issues, progressive issues. It's such a fantastic resource. And I've just been following you and seeing everything you've been posting. And lately, you've been promoting this concept called people centered advocacy. Mm -hmm. So, how do you define people centered advocacy? How is it different? And, you know, kind of what makes it revolutionary?
1: Yes. Oh, I love that. I do love that it's revolutionary and I feel mm-hmm. that. Way. So just like other sectors, the advocacy sector is going through a moment, I say, of reckoning. And it needs to. So historically, advocacy, and this will resonate with people, and I think why nonprofits stay away from it, have been very insider ball game yes. focused, deals in back smoky rooms focused. I call mm-hmm. it the Google Voice Club. It's very yep. much centered on a lobbyist relationship with the lawmaker. Yep. And that's how the advocacy sector or public policy sector has been set up. And I think luckily, rightfully so, it is changing. And that organizations that are maintaining that sort of status quo in their advocacy program will be left behind. Mm-hmm. People-centered advocacy is about making sure that what is at the center of the campaign are the people that are most impacted by that policy. Yes, Now, some people might hear what I'm saying and think I am like a lobbyist basher, which I'm not. I was a lobbyist. Lobbyists Mm -hmm. are critically important Mm -hmm. to the process. They know the people. They know the players. They know the timing. they They know the rules. All very important. But we need to be able to use that and use that to then lift up these voices of people who are historically underrepresented, unheard, and who are really at the center of these policies that we're trying to change. So a good example is I call it the old way versus the new reality. So the old way was the relationship was really between the lawmaker and the lobbyist. That was centered. That was revered. People still make billions of dollars with those relationships. But what's changing is now many lobbyists can't even get a meeting without a constituent. It doesn't matter how long I've known Senator blah, blah, blah. If I can't go in there and show that it's relevant to their constituents and their state, I can't even get a meeting. Did that recently change? You know, it's starting to change slowly over time. Yeah. I've been trying to do some research. I think I think it has to do with the, the volatile electoral map. It has to do with there's what much more transparency and information and communication. And if you don't mind me digressing a little bit, sure. oh no. To back up a little bit, one of the reasons I think it's so important. I just want to do some context setting. It's so important for nonprofits to be involved in advocacy is a couple of things. First of all, staffers and lawmakers used to sit on in their positions for years, decades, we can talk about term limits later and whether that's a good or bad thing. But what that meant is that people could get an expertise in a policy area. So maybe you came, I mean, although lawmakers are historically farmers and lawyers or whatever, that's, you know, because of yes. or whatever, but a lawmaker could sit on the health campaign, health committee for decades, get to really know healthcare or sit on the finance committee and really understand those budgets or sit on the environment committee and really understand gas markets. With the with the volatile electoral map, tenure in capital lawmaker tenures are shorter. But I would say even more yeah. important, staffer tenures are shorter. Oh, so okay. All, most lawmakers have staff who are experts in yep. these. Right. So I already mentioned I work for Senator Franken. Mm-hmm. I helped with his healthcare portfolio. Senator mm-hmm. Frank is an extremely smart guy. He was on the HELP committee, health, education, labor, and pensions. That's just one committee. Wow. Energy and environment, veterans affairs, Indian affairs. Aging committee, even the smartest bulb in the chandelier cannot know all those things. And then even yep. as this healthcare person, I had to know everything from insurance markets to oh, wow. pediatric dentistry, to medical devices, you know, like you can, like mm-hmm. the breath. So what that means is there is a gap of knowledge, expertise mm-hmm. gap of knowledge in Capitol Hills and city councils across America. Nonprofits can play a critical role in filling that expertise gap. When I work for my senator, if I needed to know something about juvenile diabetes, I could sit and research. Do I have time to do that? No, I wanted to contact the person who I could trust, who could tell me, is this bill going to be good for Minnesotans who have juvenile diabetes? And so the private sector wants to step up and do this. And I think that we can wholeheartedly argue that the nonprofit sector is uniquely positioned to help make these critical decisions on policy. We are closer to the people who are getting the services. And I think that's my number one value proposition.
0: Hey there, I'm interrupting this episode to share an absolutely free training that I created that's getting nonprofits of all sizes, big results. Sure. You've been spending hours on social media, but what can you actually show for it with all this posting and Instagramming and TikToking? Does it really translate into action? In my free training, I'll show you exactly how to take people from passive fans to passionate supporters, and I'll give you specific steps to create social media content that actually converts. Head on over to nonprofitsthatconvert.com. Again, that's nonprofitsthatconvert.com and start building a thriving social media community for your nonprofit right now. Without a big team, lots of tech overwhelm or getting stuck on the question, what do I do next? Let me show you how it's done. I can't wait to see what you create. This is what I tell a lot of my clients when they're just starting out trying to get Mm -hmm. PR, like trying Mm -hmm. to get publicity, visibility, and talk to reporters. I said, you have to find... The one reporter, probably one reporter, if you're lucky, that -hmm. covers this issue because they cannot possibly be an expert on all issues. And it's just like you said, there are so there's such a wide variety, such a breadth and depth of things that lawmakers need to understand and know about. And I'm Mm -hmm. sure that they would appreciate being informed by the nonprofits. So actually, that leads me to my next question. How can nonprofits get started? Like, What do they need to know when they're just starting out?
1: Well, I think the first thing is to look around and see who's doing this work, right? And so almost all the time in nonprofit advocacy, it's coalition-based. Rarely do you find is one nonprofit off. Do, you know, I think all advocacy should be coalition-based because if you're a single constituency issue, that is not a good thing. You want to yeah. show that your issue resonates, it has a broad coalition, diverse voices. So first look around and see who's doing this work, who is at the table. And then go, most nonprofit coalitions are, you can just, there are coalitions where it's pay to play, as we call it, like you have to provide some sort of resources to be involved. Now, those are a little bit more sophisticated, blah, blah, blah. But most times, these coalitions are looking for people, looking for organizations to join. So just go and ask that if I can sit at the table and listen. Send your comms person or the ED or your deputy director just to listen to the discussion and think, how can we, what is our unique role in this? Are we service providers? Do we have unique access to the people that are at the heart of this policy? Um, Do we do research? I mean, you just got to think where you're sitting in that. But, and I also tell my clients, if you're not at the table, you're going to be on the menu. That is something that is very important to nonprofits. I think when I'm talking about why they should be involved, I kind of keep going back. Yes. So if you're not, yeah, if you're not at the table, you're going to be on the menu. And I think nonprofits already feel like they're on the menu. And so you should definitely be at these tables. So go to the tables. Sit at the tables, listen to the conversation. And then almost all coalitions do sign-on. The easiest thing you can do is do a sign-on letter. Our organization agrees that we should be ending homelessness through this policy. That is so easy to do. And then you can tell your donors
0: about it. You can tell your members about it. You can tell your supporters about it. If there is not a table, do you recommend creating one or just maybe looking harder for one? (laughs) I think looking
1: harder. I just can't imagine that unless you're a very niche issue, I can't imagine there's already not... I mean, if your industry has anything to do with public policy, there is something our people are talking about it. Now, whether it'll be in transparent you have to go dig for it, that might be another thing, but, or maybe it is just starting a new coalition. I mean, that takes a lot of time and energy. And if you're just starting out, I might not recommend that, but eventually that's going to have to be part of the strategy down the line.
0: What are some of the biggest pitfalls and biggest mistakes I think that nonprofits hmm. make when they're starting out or even when they've been doing it for a while? Like some warnings, some things Mm -hmm. to avoid.
1: So what I do, because I work with a lot of membership, again, membership organizations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so these are like, think about, um, I was like, like medical societies, right? Or like where members pay to be part of it, maybe a professional organization. So one is a lot of things these folks do often is they don't run in campaign mode. And I think a lot of nonprofits do this as well. Like when you are in the middle of a legislative session and running a campaign, you need to operate in campaign mode. That means. You are meet, meeting more than once a week, perhaps regularly mm-hmm. about an issue, you know, legislations like baseball, it's going to be real slow. And then all of a sudden things are just going to happen. And you yep. guys you know, those things happen, you know, Yes. but a lot of times it's going to be slow. You just have to be ready. Yep. So when those things start happening, you have a mechanism in place. You should not, once a bill is introduced, you should not be going
0: mm-hmm. to your
1: board and being like, should we, you should already know oh, that. No. Bill. Yep.
0: yep. You're
1: not be going to your board and asking them, can we support this? those things might happen things obviously bills get turned into other bills but then you should also have guardrails around it okay this is our we heard red lines this is our yep. red line we will not accept anything within this outside of these lines yes. and then let your government affairs team just do their magic don't yep. micromanage them say we only need you to come back to the board for these specific things right just put all those parameters
0: out in front so you're not stymied by your own bureaucracy <laughs> right right so no that's really a good point And this leads me to my next question. What channels do you find are the most effective? Because I know you talk a lot about digital. Mm -hmm. You're very involved in the the digital world, the digital Mm -hmm. landscape. I'm sure probably old school phone calls and meetings as much as we can do right now in the current climate. But what other channels, digital or otherwise, do you find to be the most effective for advocacy?
1: So there's two ways to look at this. One is, how is your... So I work with... A lot of advocacy efforts aren't successful because of their own like internal team. So, first is how is your team communicating with each other? How is your coalition communicating with each other? Right. So there's those communication channels. I think orgs haven't gotten enough on, I think Slack is underused in the advocacy sector. Your coalition create a free Slack channel just for your coalition members where you can, especially now a lot of lobbyists or government affairs people are like, typically a lot of things happen outside the doors of the committee hearing right? They're talking, but everyone's sitting and staring at their computers now. How do those lobbyists be like, oh my God, so-and-so just said this, what are we going to do? You should be on Slack. You should have that instantaneous communication that everyone can see. So if they're not there, not part of it, they can go back and look at it and are tied into what's going on. But then there's the communication between you and your supporters or your donors, and then their communication with their lawmakers.
0: So those That's are the people-powered advocacy.
1: Yes. So first you got to think about how do we talk to our People, our people, our members, our donors and supporters about this issue. And then how do we get them to talk to the lawmakers about it? Yes. That? You know, we all I think the same pitfalls that befall other communication professionals do us too. Mm-hmm. Facebook only gets in front of the people they let you get in front of. Yep. Email is good, but are they seen at the right time? I think text is incredibly um effective. Incredibly yeah. effective in advocacy. You can click and just send an email from there. You can click to call. If you are having your advocates have to look up Contact information for the lawmakers. You are seventeen steps behind. Yeah, that yeah. is just no one. Is I can't see.
0: tell the last time I've done that.
1: I am really involved in advocacy. I might even have my state representative in my phone. I may right one percent of the population. Sure. If I don't, I'm rarely going to take the time to do it. No. So when you say click here to send this letter and click here to find your lawmaker, you're already not. Having a successful campaign,
0: right? So do as much up front as you can. Yeah. Give people this is this is a lot like what I teach when talking about fundraising campaigns mm-hmm. or um, crowdfunding campaigns. Give people as much information as you possibly can, so that they can just cut and paste it and share it for you. Because yes, they're not going to go and look and scroll and pinch and cut and paste and do any you know emails. So I love that. I've been a big fan of the text advocacy. So I am on several different text lists yeah. now that it's the political climate's not quite as urgent, but certainly mm-hmm. around the election, I was on so many different text chains, <laughs> like call your legislator about this, call your legislator about that email, about this email, about that. But I appreciated it. I didn't do it every single time, mm-hmm. but the ease of it and the way that it fit into my daily life, I think that's probably one of the trends, hopefully going forward, that we want to make advocacy as easy as possible for the normal layperson. So any tools that, that people can use to make things easier and seamless and frictionless, I think are, are great tools.
1: Absolutely. And there is a whole sector of advocacy tools out there, just like there is for fundraising tools. Yep. There's dozens of them. And I can talk, I mean, I talk to my clients about what makes sense for your organization, but there are dozens of tools. But another reason those tools are so great, in addition to making it easy, when you will appreciate this as you talk about fundraising, yep. is data and data. tracking and metrics. Yep. I don't understand when I see it. Email that tells me to click here to download this, whatever, and then go, how do they know I ever contacted my lawmaker? Yeah. How do they know how many calls are going in there? Mm-hmm. I mean, now these advocacy tools aren't perfect. I may just pick up a phone call that won't be recorded, but at least you have some kind of baseline. Okay. Right. We know that a hundred calls went into Senator so-and-so's office. So then when your lobby goes in there, your lobbyist, they can say Senator so-and-so, I know you got a hundred calls yesterday. Yeah. I mean, how powerful is that? As a message? amazing. Another pitfall though, I just want to go back to the other question. I see this a lot as well. That drives me crazy. Giving multiple options. Yes. So, um, you send me an action or you said, okay, tweet one thing, tweet at your lawmaker here Two, call them or three. And I'm like, well, which one do you want me to do? You're Mm -hmm. the expert. Which one do you want me to do? Do you want me to tweet at them? Do you want me to call them? Or do you want me to email them? Like, Giving your, I know people think giving them multiple options, you're more likely to do, but actually, people no. get stymied. You know, this when you're at the store yep. and looking at all the cereals, I'm like, I don't know. I'm, what is it called? It Decision paralysis. Oh, yeah.
0: Analysis paralysis. Analysis
1: paralysis. Yeah. I just want you, as the expert, to tell me what I need to do, tell what I me what to do. do, and when.
0: Don't tell give me
1: what to do. Choices.
0: <laughs> I mean, no, absolutely. <laughs> A confused mind always says no. Yes. So make will. it clear, make it compelling make it concise and make it just absurdly easy to do. And that's, you're going to get conversions. So I want to talk a little bit, like how can people work with you? Do you want to tell us about this new Slack community as well that you've created?
1: So, yeah, so I do. I just create a new Slack community because I am on a mission to have, to change the advocacy sector and do advocacy differently. So I started a Slack channel called Do Advocacy Differently. And these are for advocacy professionals who are tired of the status quo, who are tired of the good old boys club, cool. who are tired of lobbyists and government relations people putting themselves at the center of the campaign. Yeah. So you can go onto my website at snyderstrategies.me. And there's a little button up there called Do um, Advocacy Differently. And it tells you about the Slack channel and how do you can join. But if you're interested, if your organization is interested in doing advocacy, or if you do advocacy, and it's just, you're just yeah. missing that, that secret sauce, as I say, mm-hmm. um, you can find all my information on my website as well, which is SnyderStrategies.me. But awesome. I do a lot of posting on LinkedIn. Um, so you can find- Yes, some LinkedIn of...
0: is like blowing yeah. up. Yeah, so- All my guests, all my guests. It's like, you know, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, blown up. Yeah, LinkedIn. I do a lot, um,
1: share things. I share antidotes. I share things that I hear from lobbyists. So you can follow me there.
0: Nice. Okay, great. All right. So we are going to put all of those links in the show notes. We're going to link to Snyder Strategies, the Do Advocacy Differently, Slack community, and where you can connect with Bethany on LinkedIn. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bethany, for being here today. I really appreciate it. We could talk for hours and hours about Mm -hmm. advocacy, but I do, I think it's so important for Organizations to understand that they have a voice and they need to use it. So thank you so much for being here today. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, hey there. I wanted to say thank you for tuning into my show and for listening all the way to the end. If you really enjoyed today's conversation, make sure to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, and you'll get new episodes downloaded as soon as they come out. I would love if you left me a rating or a review because this tells other people that my podcast is worth listening to. And then me and my guests can reach even more earbuds and create even more impact. So that's pretty much it. I'll be back soon with a brand new episode. But until then, you can find me on Instagram at JuliaCampbell77. Keep changing the world, you nonprofit unicorn.